All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Learn Your English is a company that is changing the way people study, learn, and teach languages. Learn Your English offers students and teachers strategies to effectively develop their abilities and skills in their own time. Bringing you the latest in English language learning and teaching, Teacher Talking Time explores all angles for teachers and students alike. Got a question? Comment. A story to share. Send us an email at info at learnyourenglish.com. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. There will, will be, there will be teacher education places where, um, unfortunately, where it's all about the pedagogy and, and it's not about the language itself. So there are lots of language teachers who don't really know the language very well, yes. especially native speakers of the language. Yes. Yes. And so th th those native speakers who are trying to teach somebody else the language, they speak just fine, thank you very much, but really have never studied and learned to understand. That's, that's too bad because they have more difficulty understanding what their students are struggling with. Um, uh, on the other hand, um, it used to be that teaching the language, it was all about teaching the language and the literature, and there was very little pedagogy. And that was particularly true for people who were preparing to teach languages at the university level. Mm -hmm. So they had all this deep literature, literature knowledge and grammar knowledge, but they had no pedagogy. So you really, it's finding the balance between knowing the language that you're teaching, and, and by language, I don't just mean the grammar, I mean the, the language and its culture, the language and its... And, and, and what it means in a larger sense, um, and also pedagogy, the language, you know, knowing the language and having pedagogical strategies and skills that will allow you to bring the language to the students. Hi, everyone. My name is Marek Kiczkowiak, and I'm from Poland. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Dr. Patsy Martin Lightbound has worked for more than 40 years in the fields of language teaching and language learning. Her research has focused on the teaching and learning of second and foreign languages in classroom contexts. She is a distinguished professor emerita at Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. In addition, she is a writer and editor as well as a consultant and advisor to teachers, policymakers, curriculum developers, administrators and evaluators of second and foreign language instructional programs. Professor Lightbound is also the co-author with Nina Spada of the wonderful, perhaps one of the most well-read books um, in ELT, How Languages Are Learned, which is also an award-winning book. It is used in teacher education and applied linguistic courses throughout the world. She has also published scores of articles on her research in professional journals and books. And some of these articles are compiled in Learning a Second Language in the Classroom, which has been published by the Shanghai Foreign Language Education Press in 2014. In our podcast today, 
uh, Dr. Lightbound and I talk a little bit about her book, How Languages Are Learned. We talk a little bit about second language acquisition. We touch a little bit on the main strengths of the four strands of language acquisition, which is something uh, designed by Paul Nation. Um, we also talk a little bit about some of the micro points of teaching and learning, the roles of the role of textbooks, as well as her experience teaching. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. We're going to start by talking a little bit about um, your books, probably how languages are learned. I would say it's, it, in my opinion, is one of the most read books in English language teaching, and it explains theories of language acquisition for classroom teaching um, of first and second languages, as well as examining factors such as intelligence, uh, personality, age on language learning, as well as research ideas. So first of all, I wanted to thank you for writing it. I found the book to be tremendously helpful personally, and it has become one of the very few books I revisit on a regular <laughs> basis. Well, thank you. That's very kind. It's a book that, it, 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 there was uh, one of the first people who wrote a review of this book, its first edition mm. that came out, as you may know, in 1993. It was about half the size that it is now. But um, it, it was reviewed by William Rutherford from oh. the University of... Yeah, okay. I don't have to explain. So William Rutherford re wrote a review in which he referred to the book as a labor of love. And I was so touched by that because indeed... That's exactly what it was. It was a, a an expression of our engagement mm -hmm. with the community of teachers uh, where we lived and worked in Quebec. Um, and it was also, of course, it's also a labor of friendship between Nina and me because we are we're very close friends. We worked together for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was very touching and a bit surprising to see a an academic uh, book review described as a labor of love, but it, we, we appreciated it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, I, I am ex eternally grateful for, for you having you and uh, Nina having written this book. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the, the genesis of the book? What inspired you and, and your co-author Nina to actually write this book? We had been uh, teaching, both of us had been teaching in teacher training, teacher education programs. She was at McGill at the time and I was at Concordia. And we, we worked together on research activity, but we each also taught in our respective universities uh, teacher education programs, both undergraduate and master's level teacher education. And in addition, we often were invited to do workshops and teacher professional development activities in the community. And um, one of the things we did, of course, was to talk about language acquisition, since that was the research focus that we had. And um, the Ministry of Education in Quebec decided that they wanted to have what they referred to as a set of modules that they could kind of ship out into the larger, more widespread community where there might not be a university professor available to give a workshop. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to give access to some of this material to teachers who were far away from a, a, a university teacher training program. So. Um, we were asked to devise a module that would touch on language acquisition research. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that someone out in the far reaches of Quebec could, <laughs> could, 
could admit, could, you know, um, animate, what's the English word, uh, facilitate, facilitate this right. workshop. Uh, and, and we wouldn't have to be there, but the work could be there. So we said, okay, this has to be something that can be kind of self-taught or administered, facilitated by somebody who doesn't have a PhD in language acquisition. And um, so we started out writing it that way. And then some, some, a friend of ours, a colleague of ours from the UK, uh, looked at it and said, gee, you know, other people would like to see this too. And we, um, we, he convinced us to submit it to Oxford. And Oxford's first reaction was, it's very nice for Quebec, but I don't know if anybody else would want to have it. It maybe is too specific. Anyway, oh, wow. long story short, we, we tweaked it a bit, I guess you'd say. And um, uh, it turned out to, that it, it actually has been read all over the world. I mean, to really, I, I can't tell you how humbling it is <laughs> to, to, to walk into a teacher education program somewhere in, in a country I've never visited and where I know no one and to be greeted um, with such enthusiasm because of the book, because of the book. And so Nina and I have both had that experience of being um, treated as um, sort of, uh, I don't know, rock stars sometimes, <laughs> slightly embarrassing. Um, but it's 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 wonderful that the book has been received so well. It was our intention to make it a book that was accessible. Um, we originally actually thought it would be accessible to the point that teachers could read it on their own without having to have a professor teach it to them. We didn't think of it was mm -hmm. we didn't think it would be a textbook, but we understand that now it's very often used, as you say, as the first textbook that people meet when they start mm -hmm. a, an ESL program or a something in the in the area um, so uh, and that makes it nice because teachers can uh, professors who teach the course can enrich it supplement it localize it in ways that make it particularly useful so it's the shell mm -hmm. and in, in local environments people can adapt it to their needs absolutely I I think what you said is very true I think it, it makes second language acquisition research more accessible to teachers because more often than not, I think one of the biggest um, criticisms that I hear from practitioners, I mean, the teachers who are in the classroom is that they don't really have time to read. Mm -hmm. They don't really have time to, to download these papers because a lot of them cost a lot of money and it's quite expensive for a teacher to download these things. But I think the book definitely encapsulates all the theories um, that one needs to become um, comfortable with in terms of understanding how languages are actually um, learned. Well, I think if, if it helps teachers realize that it really is about learning, it isn't, it isn't just, I mean, teaching is important, but the reason we teach is so that students learn. Yes. And, and so the more we understand about learning, the more likely we are to be able to teach in a way that facilitates that learning because nobody can learn for somebody else. I mean, we, we try to adapt our instructions so that it, it makes knowledge available to students, but they have to come to it. They have to reach out and get it. Um, so the more we know about how they do that, mm -hmm. then the better we can serve them as teachers. And you're right about teachers not reading research. They, they, teachers don't have time. Legitimately, teachers don't have time. And when they do encounter research, it's often written for other researchers 
which is perfectly legitimate, perfectly appropriate. But if teachers are going to be able to use it, then it needs to be adapted to their interests and their needs and their backgrounds. So that's something that we've talked and written a lot about recently, and the, the sort of shared responsibility for researchers and teachers to inform each other Mm-hmm. So that researchers have a better understanding of what teachers need and what they're looking for, and so that when uh, re- researchers write with the intention of influencing teachers, they write in a way that gives teachers access to the knowledge they or the information they want to share. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's very true. I think it was Michael Lewis who said that languages are actually not taught; languages are learned. To be sure, yeah. and and I I agree with that. I think my question to you is. Um, so you've been talking, I th- you, what you said is true. It's, it's, we, we emphasize too much the teaching of languages and not so much the learning of languages. So my question to you is, again, paraphrasing the books, how languages are actually learned in your opinion? <laughs> that was a question, was it? <laughs> well, um, uh, how, how can I, what's the short answer? <laughs> this is short. There is no short answer. No, there's no short answer nor is there any shortcut to learning and I think that's the other thing that um, mm-hmm. the exception of a few savants and we won't uh, we won't use them as examples for most people the learning of a language is the work of a lifetime you, mm-hmm. you don't you don't learn a language and then have done with it you start learning at a certain point you learn um, for thousands of hours if you're fortunate enough to have that time and that access and and still at the end of those thousands of hours you may still have much to learn. I mean I certainly I don't know about you but I learn new vocabulary every all the time I mean and I've been speaking English for about 75 years (laughs) so (laughs) um, but there's always something new to learn and if you're a second language learner um, you you haven't had 75 years to work on it so Mm -hmm. you have to work really hard and so how are languages learned? Languages are learned through um, use. Mm-hmm. There has to be a reason to use it. Um, and um, there's a, <clears throat> there was a time when I first started teaching when um, uh, language classrooms were characterized mainly by pattern practice and drill. Right. So students practiced a lot, but what they practiced was saying things that didn't matter to them and right. that were of no real consequence or interest and that sometimes they didn't even understand the meaning of nor did they have to understand the meaning all they had to do was get the kind of slot filler right mentality so they could either repeat or make minor changes and they would just practice 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 so in 1985 when i wrote an article uh, about what we had learned from second language acquisition research I slipped in a kind of uh, probably too cute comment that um, practice does not make perfect. Huh. And I have, I have been atoning for that ever since because the reality is that practice is exactly what makes perfect, but you have to practice the right things. Yes. And what, and what you practice is using language to mean something mm-hmm. or to understand something, not just to m- mimic the sounds. Um, it's 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 using language that matters. Mm-hmm. On, I actually want to ask you a question on that because what you said is true. It's it's the idea of spending time um, learning the language, using the language, in encountering those um, situations where meaning is primary. 
I think one of the biggest issues that I have with the current state of language teaching, especially in schools, is that we're still using textbooks. And a lot of the times we're still adopting the what I call the PPP paradigm or the present practice. And I call the last stage the preach because you really, <laughs> really hope that the students are actually going to use the language that you have presented in the first P. So my question to you is, would you consider that authentic communication when students are just using language in that, in that, in, the, in those, which eventually becomes more stilted in that practice aspect of, of the paradigm? Well, let's, let's also agree that um, putting 35 people in a room with a teacher who's going to speak to them in a language that they understand little of limits the kind of uh, free expression and um, emotional connection that is typical um, of, of communication outside a classroom. A classroom is a special environment. And so it's important for teachers to recognize that they, that they are in a special environment. And, and I think the starting point is to, is to use language that is meaningful within the classroom. I, I used to laugh at the, um, and I saw this many, many times, especially back in the days of the audiolingual drill uh, <laughs> activities, where teachers would be drilling the language and they'd be drilling the sentence patterns and they'd go over and over and over. And then somebody would, uh, I don't know, get up and, and walk toward the door and the teacher would immediately switch to the native language because now the teacher had something to say that meant something like, where are you going and what are you doing and why aren't you sitting down? Um, so anything that was what I call real communication was mm. done in the native language and the opportunity to actually have a meaningful exchange was lost. Um, while they, and then they went back to the drill of the foreign language or the second language. Right. So it, it is not easy to create situations. I think that's one of the benefits of task-based right. and project-based learning that you create situations where there's a reason to use the language. Uh, it's also one of the benefits of content-based instruction mm -hmm. because people are held responsible for the science lesson that's taught in a second language, then they must learn through the language and thereby also learn the language. So it's, it's whatever we can do to make language meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, I, it, you know, the other thing that I have said so many times, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say it again, <laughs> is that um, classroom, that language learning begins in the classroom. It only begins there. Mm -hmm. And it, it, if you don't take that learning outside, if you, the student, don't continue the learning outside the classroom, you will never be highly proficient you'll never be an advanced speaker yes. you've got you start in the classroom the classroom gives you tools mm -hmm. the classroom helps you um, develop strategies and tools so that once you get outside the classroom and you and, and whether that outside the classroom means you go home and watch a YouTube video mm -hmm. or you go to the local supermarket and try to buy something or you try to read a newspaper whatever the whatever the meaning focused content is that you try to work with outside the classroom, the classroom gives you confidence and strategies mm -hmm. that you can use when you're outside the classroom. But the classroom is just a starting point. Huh. Interesting. I, 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 well, I agree with you. I don't really have much to say on that. And I agree that the classroom, to me, I usually tell students that the classroom is almost like a lab. You mm -hmm. to, it's trial and error. Let's experiment. The real learning really happens when you're not 
in the classroom. As you said, it's very difficult to help 35 people learn a language at the same time when everyone has different needs. Yeah. So ideally, as you said, we should be teaching um, strategies. And I think that's where the learner autonomy, uh, learner autonomy comes into Certainly. To play. Um, so you yeah. said use was one of the um, things we should be doing to uh, learn languages. Would you say that motivation is a second one? Well, the, yeah, that's, that's fundamental to everything. But of course, mm -hmm. the, 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 if, if we know anything about motivation, we understand that it's a um, vicious or virtuous cycle. Mm -hmm. If somebody comes in full of enthusiasm and the classroom is a miserable place and they fail at what they're supposed to do there, their motivation will be negatively affected. And, and uh, if they come in negatively disposed to the language already, um, it's hard to, to get their mm -hmm. cooperation. And that's, that's especially true when people are there under um, obligation, when, you know, in a, in a secondary school classroom, for example, which is quite different yeah. from an adult education program or even a primary school. But um, I, my sense about that is that motivation, you, you can't think of motivation in terms of some great life um, scale phenomenon. Motivation is minute to minute. Like, am I interested right now? Am, are you saying something right now that I want to pay attention to? Are you creating a situation right now that I want to contribute to? Mm -hmm. That's what I would, that's what I think classroom motivation has to be. It's much more, that's what the teacher has some control over. Right. I think uh, Zolt, Zoltan Dornier's work on motivation, I think, is just so interesting. Uh, and, it's, and of course, motivation is much more complicated than anything yes. we're saying right now. Mm -hmm. but, but motivation isn't something that you have, like how tall you are or what color your hair is. It's something that changes all the time. Yeah. And teachers have some impact on it. And then there are other aspects of it that they can't control. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier with the idea of practice. I usually believe to me, I don't, I don't rely so much on motivation to do things. I rely more on my discipline. So I find that if I, if I develop the discipline to do something, I will eventually do that every day, regardless of, regardless of whether I'm motivated or not to do it. And I find that that's something that you mentioned in your talk as well at the Real Institute, where you said that we really need to be encouraging students to, to do extensive practice with either reading, listening, speaking. So they're constantly using the language. They're constantly reading. If they want to improve their writing, I encourage my students, you have to do some sort of free writing every day. I encourage mm -hmm. a lot of journaling because, again, especially now with all these mental health problems, I find that a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're not really, we don't really think about our thoughts. We don't really understand why we, we think a certain way. So that's mm -hmm. definitely one it's of them. It's interesting that you've you sort of made a contrast between discipline and motivation. I, I wouldn't make that contrast. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah, I think, uh, it, I mean, to me, a person mm. who has, who, who can, has the self-control and the self-awareness to self-impose those disciplines <laughs> is a highly motivated person. That's certainly how I would think of it. Huh. Um, motivation to me isn't some kind of, um, you know, cheery, uh, happy, uh, oh, I just can't wait to get to class today. Um, but it's much deeper than that. It's, it's, um, Absolutely. No, it, I agree with that. And, and so if you, if you can impose those disciplines on yourself, you can only do it because you are motivated to reach a goal that you have mm. set somehow. For That's yourself. true. That's true. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. 
<laughs> I, I think for me, usually it's because I, I think most of the time we associate motivation with our emotions. You say, oh, I don't feel like doing yeah. writing right now. So you, sure. you, you normally yeah. say to yourself, I'm not motivated to write as yeah. opposed to I write every day because I see myself yeah. as a writer. Therefore, I need to incorporate right. that behavior. So yeah, I think it's true. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know why, but I've always created this dichotomy. There is to me a difference between motivation and discipline. But I think as you said, it's the motivation to achieve certain thing that creates that discipline. So, right, right, because yeah. you have a longer term goal that you've set yeah. for yourself, and you have you're, you're motiv- you you are motivated to achieve it, and you yeah. use the discipline as a as a means to getting to that. Um, that's right. That's right. Well, there you go. I've just learned something else again. Oh, I might do more research. Of something differently. <laughs> I, I might I might have to do some more research and read uh, more on the topic of motivation. My, more from a, a psychological perspective so we said use motivation and the third one i guess would be input well hmm. it depends on what okay for me use includes input okay so use means putting yourself in situations where you have to understand what's being said to you where you have to understand what you're trying to read mm-hmm. um so use includes both Comprehend, reception, comprehension, and production, production. for me. That's uh, so, uh, because I would want to make sure it was understood that, that my idea of, of use also requires you to try to produce language, because right. in spite of what we were led to think some years ago, mm-hmm. um, we, we learned pretty quickly that comprehensible input is only the starting point, a lot. Yes a lot more has to be done after that so comprehensible input is certainly the starting point i could you know nobody could seriously disagree with the importance of that yeah but if you don't start trying to produce language then you get stuck and you don't realize you you think you know more than you do um and you don't um make the progress that you'd want to make Uh, producing language requires you to recognize where the gaps are that's Mm -hmm. what that of course was the 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 um, the idea of Merrill Swain's comprehensible output hypothesis. Output. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So just to go, uh, actually, I mean, I have so many questions, but I'm going to go back to one that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the book. Mm-hmm. It's um, when when you talked about bridging the gap and making second language acquisition research more accessible to teachers. Mm-hmm. I think one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is. What are some of the challenges that you yourself have faced when you were conducting that um, second language acquisition research for the book? You mean uh, in in how to write about it or in how to actually... More more like the process of writing it. Well, I think... um, (laughs) uh, I could get myself in trouble here, but I'll I'll think (laughs) carefully now. Um, So I, I, I told you about the review that mm-hmm. touched my heart so much. Right. There was another reviewer who reviewed the same book and commented that there was some useful material there, but that it was patronizing. Oh. We were so horrified, horrified by the idea that anyone could understand that what we were doing was patronizing. Hmm. First place, I have such respect for teachers. I do honestly believe that teaching, especially in the primary and secondary school, 
is just about the hardest work anybody can do. Absolutely. Hugely difficult. And teachers who do it and stick with it are extremely courageous and and smart. I mean, they they've they they learn how to do things by doing them. So we have great respect for teachers. We had learned a great deal from teachers. That's why we could talk about what we I mean when what we know about language acquisition in the classroom, we know because we've watched teachers teaching and right. learners learning in the classroom. So this person said something about being patronizing. We thought, oh, that's dreadful. We were just so horrified. But I think what he meant, and it's sad, um, is that we used simple language. We used short sentences where it was possible to use a, what I would call um, a, 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 a non-academic term. Right. Um, we just tried to use simple, straightforward language. Um, where we knew, I mean, just, I mean, you, you have to accept that you cannot say everything. You have to accept that not all the caveats and provisos and statistical significances can be conveyed mm -hmm. if you're going to make it accessible. Um, what you hope to do is to make it accessible to people and then pique their curiosity so that if there's some particular issue that they find important enough, they might seek out uh, an opportunity to learn more. Um, and it, th this issue of making research uh, accessible has become quite, um, uh, quite um, important in, in the recent past. There is a, um, an initiative among others, but one initiative that I find particularly impressive is um, out of work being done by Emma Marsden, and her colleagues. It's something called Oasis. And oh. I'm going to, uh, I would have to, this is the, this is where being 75 doesn't uh, Don't worry, I'll uh, work I can my favorite. Yeah, look it up. It's it, um, the work that they're doing in, invites researchers to write one page summaries of uh, studies that they've done and to write those one page summaries with, uh, with a teacher population in mind. Um, so that the the main findings of their studies can be accessed online, free, and then if people want to go further, they can. Um, and I just learned um, that, for example, the Modern Language Journal mm. has just made a decision, or has recently made a decision, that every article that they publish in the Modern Language Journal must also be um, uh, made available to Oasis in this one-page summary form. Oh, nice. So more and more people are recognizing the need for accessible material. Um, but you know, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that academic, scientific research papers aren't valuable. It just means that they're only valuable to the people who can understand them. Exactly. And if we can make some of their findings available to people who have who have different knowledge, different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of interests, then we may be able to enrich their, their practice um, without expecting them to do something that's not realistic, um, you know, which is to say access uh, these scientific journals that they huh. time for, can't afford, and don't understand. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think I was thinking about the patronizing comment. Again, it must have, <laughs> it must have come from an academic. It who did. <laughs> doesn't understand the reality of 
the everyday teacher who is in the classroom teaching six to seven hours a day, marking tasks, preparing lessons. There and you get, go. And getting underpaid. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's what makes the book, Patsy, really accessible is the language. I myself remember uh, when I was working as a director of studies, I remember uh, downloading some of these journals and sharing them with my teachers. And I've had teachers walk up back to me and say, Leo, I can't understand a word of this. Oh, dear. <laughs> so uh, just to go back to your oasis here, it's open, accessible summaries and language studies. There you go. Um, yeah, it looks, it looks amazing. And you mentioned the uh, Modern Language Journal. I just found out here that there are two other journals, the Language Learning and the Antiso Quarterly is also um, requiring their authors Excellent. to write summaries. Yeah. So I think this is something, is going to, something that opens up the world for teachers so they can actually have access to, to this research. On that note, what suggestions would you give to teachers who are interested in conducting second language acquisition research? What would be the starting point for some of them? Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hi, this is Yuki from Japan. You are listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. On that note, what suggestions would you give to teachers who are interested in conducting second language acquisition research? What would be the starting point for some of them? Uh, for teachers doing their own research? Yeah. Uh, in the context of, of being students themselves in an academic program or just in their own classrooms? Just, I would say more, mostly like action research in their classroom. Okay, well, there's of course a whole big literature on action research and I am not the expert in that area. Um, I'll tell you another sort of funny story about mm. um, a colleague. He was, he was one of my professors actually when I was um, a graduate student at Columbia. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of John Fanslow. Do you know John Fanslow? Oh, yes, Breaking okay. Rules. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Classic. Classic book. So, wonderful. I haven't I'm, met him, but I'm, I'm delighted. I'm delighted that you know about him. He's 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 a wonderful person, wonderful human being, an eccentric professor, if ever there was one. And um, he was one of my teachers at Columbia. And um, he and I used to. I mean, after I suppose as as I finished my studies and would have conversations with him occasionally afterward, mm -hmm. um, we would sometimes maybe disagree about whether teachers needed to understand the theoretical backgrounds to certain actions in the classroom. You know, why would you, why do you do that? Why, it's, okay, it's really good to, let's say, provide certain kind of feedback, but why? What is it that that's doing? So mm -hmm. I would kind of argue the case that you needed to have the 
theoretical understanding of why you would do something so that that would encourage you to keep trying to and so forth. And he said, no, no, you just have to do something different. Hmm. And he emphasized that point. And more and more, I've come to believe that he's right. That what, what teachers, what, what we know is that um, for better or worse, when you teach, because it's such a hard job, if you find something that kind of works, then you'll probably do more and more of that. Uh, and, and, yes. and in John's own research, it looks like he, I can remember he found that teachers have less and less variety in their activities as the year goes by. Mm-hmm. And, and so that may make the teacher feel more secure and you know, less stressed, but it may eventually also lead to, to a loss of interest on the part of the students. Mm-hmm. So he, his idea was simply to say, for the sake of the teacher and for the students, just do something different. Do something you haven't done before. It may not even seem very important. I mean, his example was always, um, you've been having them underline the words they don't know. Now have them underline the words they do know. <laughs> Which um, is, I mean, it was kind of a silly example, but what he was saying was, once you've tried something different, then see how that felt. See how that huh. worked. See how the students reacted. So this is, a, this is a, a kind of research, if you will. This is mm-hmm. to say, I'm going to try something different and see if it works. Now, you might, be, you might choose that something different on the basis of an article you read, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or more likely, you'd choose something different on the basis of something you saw in another teacher's classroom or that mm-hmm. another teacher commented to you. Um, but if you do try something different, then you need to, you need to monitor and observe yourself and say, how did that feel? How did that work? What did the students think? How did they react? Um, So that's a kind of, that's a very basic kind of research. Now teachers can obviously do things that are more um, systematic or or widespread, but um, I think the important thing is if we talk about teacher research, um, to realize that Mm -hmm. one of the things we know about teachers is that they, well, one thing, you know, all teachers will say, I've never taught the same class twice because every group is different. Every, every interaction dynamic mm. is different. Um, and, and teaching is very local. It's, yes. it's, it's, it's what you're doing right now uh, with, your, with your class. Um, so if teachers are going to do research, it probably makes most sense for them to do research that is related to what they're doing in their classroom um, and to see if they can make changes that result in what feels different and Mm -hmm. what maybe results in, I mean, if you want to measure it in terms of exam, exam um, performance or in terms of engagement or how long, how long a text a student is willing to write or whether a student's willing to participate in a sketch or a role play, um, you, you know, you, there's different ways you could measure the outcome of your experiments. But ultimately, it's if teachers are doing research in their own classrooms, it's really to find out how something works in their own classroom. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I because I was just I remember reading the book back, <laughs> I'd say 10, 15 years ago, and I think that was the essence of the book is trying to. I, th- he, I think he suggests that the best way for us to develop as teachers is to actually um, break our own rules 
and, and yes. see what happens, as you said, instead of circling, maybe yeah. underlining this time. Um, and again, <laughs> yeah. stretching, stretching yourself out of that comfort zone, because as teachers, we all know that we get stuck in a rut at times. We've been teaching the same thing. Sometimes we don't want to do the prep. We don't want to create new materials. And, sure. and I think that's, that's the essence of that. Okay. <laughs> huh, interesting. I need the other to example he gave was, the other example was, yeah. you've been standing behind the desk. Now, why don't you stand on top of the desk? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that would be good for me because I'm, I'm already a very tall person. So we'd have to do lie down on the floor and teach your lesson. Or there you go. That could happen. Yeah. I do remember the book had it having an impact on me and, and change. I, I never really stand in the same position. I never do the same things in the classroom, I never start the classroom in the same way. And I think that was the, the main message of the book uh -huh. um, for me. Um, I want to talk a little bit now about the, um, your presentation that Mike and Andrew and I had the uh, pleasure of attending at the, I think it was the Real Institute, the uh, Ryerson mm -hmm. University Conference. And you talked about um, applying uh, nations four strands of language acquisition, meaning focused input, meaning focused output, language focused learning and fluency development. I was wondering if you could summarize for our listeners very quickly what the four strands are, because I feel like many of them are not familiar with that. Well, when I discovered or read the first article about these four strands back in when they when he first was um, publishing uh, articles about his ideas um, I was really impressed by the simplicity of it and there to go back to the notion of accessibility yeah. if you know Paul Nation's work you have some understanding of the depth of his knowledge of vocabulary learning that's his main focus of course um, but but he has a, an enormous history, deep and wide, of understanding how people acquire vocabulary and how most, how most successfully to teach vocabulary. Um, and he drew on that to, to, to talk in terms of, to basically simplify what it is that is necessary to be successful in teaching vocabulary. And he said, you just need four things. Um, hmm. And those four things are, meaning-focused input, which is very similar, and he will say this in his work too, very similar to Krashen's idea of comprehensible input, where mm -hmm. it's either material that you hear or material that you read, which you understand, but which has enough elements in it that you're not familiar with, that it challenges you a bit. Mm -hmm. But your purpose for reading or talking or whatever it is, that's, or listening rather, is to understand the meaning of what's mm -hmm. in the text. And in order to do that, you have to already know most of the words and you have to already be familiar with most of the structures. So the, the nature of meaning-focused input will vary greatly across time according to the, the proficiency status of the learner. Meaning-focused input, then meaning-focused output, and that takes you, uh, you know, again to the Merrill Swain mm. comprehensible output idea where in comprehensible output, you're trying to say something or write something so that someone else will understand you and you discover in doing that that you can say most of what you want to say but there are words you don't know or there's a certain phrasing that you haven't quite got so you have to maybe go to a dictionary or maybe uh, ask someone or take out a grammar book you have to you have to get some information but 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 most of what you want to say is already known you already know most of what you have to say and your purpose in meaning focused output is to communicate what you already can can say or write 
And then language-focused learning is where you, you actually focus on, concentrate on learning some new things about the language, getting some of that knowledge that um, in, in cognitive psychology or in, in De Keyser's uh, skill acquisition theory you would call declarative learning, where you find mm -hmm. you know something, you know the rule for something, you know the facts about something, or, right. or where you learn a list of vocabulary words that are appropriate to a particular topic that you're working on or where you, um, or for that matter, where you do pattern practice drill mm -hmm. to work on getting some things to come out of your mouth at the right time together. Um, but you're doing it for strictly for the purpose of, of getting the form right, getting the language piece right. And then what's most important about the language-focused learning piece is that the, the language that you're focusing on in that strand is useful when you go back to the meaning-focused input and meaning-focused output. Um, I used to say when I would go into French immersion classes and see kids being taught conjugations that they would never in a million years come in contact with, that it was completely ridiculous that what they should be learning is simple pass, or not simple, not passé simple, but passé composé and imparfait, that the, the language forms that they would be using in, the, in their real life Anyway, that's, that's a really important thing about language-focused learning, that it has to be something that you're going to actually practice in the meaning-focused input and meaning-focused output. And then the last strand, which every time I talk about this, I always tease people with, because nobody ever can, can think what that is. What, you know, once you said meaning-focused input, meaning-focused output, language-focused, what else is there? And fluency development is where you, you use what you know already but you use it over and over again to the point where it becomes automatic. And this, again, it's not, it's not pattern practice and it's not, um, it's not structured drills. It's meaningful language use. Mm -hmm. so, uh, this is one of the most challenging things I think for teachers to, um, to develop in the classroom is, is to create um, situations where students have to say the same thing over and over again, or something similar mm -hmm. again and again. Um, but to do it faster and more accurately with time. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are activities of the sort that um, Nation mentions, you know, things like timed writing, where you write something, uh, you write a text, and then you, you have 10 minutes to write it, and then you put it away, and then now you have eight minutes to write the same thing. Mm -hmm. Again, to, to put the same information. Right. Or, or, but, but, you know, that's just one example. I remember used, I used to watch kids in a, in a dual... A bilingual, a two-way bilingualism class, um, standing in concentric circles. I don't know if you've seen this in primary yeah. school classrooms. And they would ask, speak to one person in front of them, and ask a question or tell, say something, and then the circle would rotate, and then they'd be standing in front of a different classmate, and they'd ask the same question or a different, a related question. Mm -hmm. So they got a chance to say over and over again the same things. Um, but it was always in a context where they were actually communicating something. Uh, so listening, uh, listening to something and then listening to something at a higher speed so mm. that you can listen to it faster um, or, or writing something and writing it more quickly. Or uh, so fluency is, it's really important that fluency is about all four skills, listening, speaking, reading, and writing with greater automaticity. That's the goal to be yeah. able to do these things uh, faster. No, I, I was just thinking about that, the idea of task repetition. Um, hmm. I find that normally 
when I add a little bit of what we try to do when we are teaching, at least with, with our company, with Learning English, what we, we try to really emphasize is the idea that we really want our students to do the same task because, because they have already done that task once. We're expecting that the language will become, as you said, automatized. And then we do things where we add a little bit of complexity to that task. Maybe it could be uh, complexity in, in terms of time. It could be complexity as in changing the instructions a little bit, just so it gives them the chance to use the language again. Um, exactly. So what is interesting here, Patsy, is that um, when we look at the four strands, three of them focus on meaning, while only one, which is the language focus, emphasizes this focus on form. So. And this is a question that I've received because we opened uh, the podcast for, for our listeners to send us questions. But one of the number one questions we have received is, how would you encapsulate the relative importance of implicit and explicit learning or, or knowledge, the idea of declarative knowledge and procedural um, knowledge in terms of learning? Is there any evidence for a strong interface where we just teach forms focus on forms and that leads to learning or or we, we all know that the no interface with immersion just comprehensible input doesn't really lead to this automatization as a matter of fact it leads to fossilization so would it be would it be correct for me to assume that the weak interface would be the way to go for teachers well it's certainly the the perspective that works for me it certainly makes sense to me that that um um, knowing something about what you're trying to do um, gives you a, um, I used to call it hooks, you, you, you had something to hold on to as you were attempting to, um, to communicate, you could remember a little bit of what you've been taught in the, in the declarative sense, a little bit of the, of the formal knowledge, and you could use that as the basis for kind of getting started on something. Um, uh, I think I think the declarative knowledge has has it has importance in two places, particularly it, it it has importance at a beginning stage or or at the at the stage of beginning to learn something new, mm -hmm. so that you have a better idea of what you're about to pay attention to, you, what what you need to focus on, what the what the elements are that you're going to be watching for, in the meaning interaction and then of course uh, that kind of knowledge has a role when you are um, struggling to produce language or struggling to understand something and you can't figure out what the problem is then having an intervention where someone comes along and says here's the here's here's why that's hard for you to understand or here's what you're saying this is what you mean to be saying and this is what's different about it so I think um, both at the beginning of, of learning a particular aspect of language and at a point where you're struggling having some guidance from language focused learning is valuable mm -hmm. but then ultimately the only way you get to fluency and automaticity is practicing using the language in in meaningful interaction the other important things about fluency of course is that by developing this automaticity it it frees your mind so that you can pay attention to more new things. So the, the more things you have accessible automatically, the more you can pay attention to something new in a, in a pressured, meaning-focused interaction. Mm -hmm. 
If you're yeah. struggling to understand every single thing, um, then then you're going to be um, you're just going to get frustrated. So the more you can automatize, um, and that's a gradual process, and eventually um, you just mm-hmm. have more and more things that are accessible to you automatically. And I think that's, as you said, I think that's what makes sense to me as well, especially learning how to ride a bicycle. You don't really learn the parts of the bicycle. You kind of learn by riding the bicycle. It's the idea of learning by doing versus what we normally see with, with classroom teaching now where students are learning the language and then they're being asked to yeah. And I think that's what I th- yeah. that's why we believe that task-based language teaching, as you said, yeah. uh, problem problem-based and, and content-based, mm-hmm. um, um, support this 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 notion, this theory. Um, I think one last thing I have to say about um, I have to ask you about the the four strands is that I would say you can disagree with me on this, but the main argument of the four strands is to provide a variety of ways of helping um, people, students learn a language. Um, so why there is, why do you think there is still this very strong emphasis on teaching forms? Why do you think this has been so prevalent in our industry? Maybe because it's easier. If Mm. you just have a list of things to teach, then, um, maybe that's the answer. I think it's also, um, people teach as they were taught. It's hard Mm. to break the habits of your own. Uh, learning experiences. Um, hmm. I, I think those are the probably the main reasons. Um, okay. It's certainly easier to think up a grammar exercise than it is to think up a meaningful task that students are capable of doing at the level of language they currently have, um, but that will also push them to uh, to learn a little bit further. I mean, that's do, developing really good language learning tasks is an enormously difficult thing mm-hmm. to do. I'm sure you'll agree. Yes, um, absolutely. Whereas, you know, opening to page 43 of the grammar book is, is much easier. <laughs> much yes. easier. But I find that just walking into the classroom and looking for opportunities where language is naturally emerging and, and following the flow with those conversations, and as you said, really providing assistance where we notice that students are struggling. That's where I, I, to me, I see teaching more as not preemptively, preemptively teaching uh, forms, but reactively looking at what students are producing and then kind of scaffolding that type of uh, learning. Absolutely. And one of the last thing in lieu of all these points you've just made, what do you think, especially because you have done a lot of teacher training in the past and teacher education, what should be added to these to, to teacher education pre-service courses to help better prepare teachers or or even better inform how they make use of of textbooks for example maybe a greater emphasis on language analysis language awareness what in your opinion do you think we should be adding to these courses my goodness that's a difficult question i, I guess i can only answer it in specific uh, terms because mm-hmm. there will be there will be teacher education places where um unfortunately um Let's just say as an example where, um, uh, well, where it's all about the pedagogy and and it's not about the language itself. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of language teachers who don't really know the language very well, especially native speakers of the language. 
And so the, those native speakers who are trying to teach somebody else the language that they speak just fine, thank you very much, but really have never studied and learned to understand, that's, that's too bad because they have more difficulty understanding what their students are struggling with. Um, uh, on the other hand, um, it used to be that teaching the language, it was all about teaching the language and the literature, and there was very little pedagogy. And that was particularly true for people who were preparing to teach languages at the university level. Mm. So they had all this deep literature, literature knowledge and grammar knowledge, but they had no pedagogy. So you really, it's finding the balance between knowing the language that you're teaching, and, and by language, I don't just mean the grammar, I mean the the language and its culture, the language and its and 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 what it means in a larger mm -hmm. sense, um, and also pedagogy, the language, you know, knowing the language and having pedagogical strategies and skills that will allow you to bring the language to the students. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, no, this is this is true. It's great. I would like to end by asking you four rapid fire questions. Oh dear. <laughs> um, and these are again. Oh, I, you're already out of time. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm afraid you're four <laughs> minutes late. <laughs> um, very quickly, what advice, knowing what you know now, what advice would you have given to your 20, 30 year old self, your younger <laughs> teacher self? Um, Engage the students in talking about what's important to them and show them how the language that they're learning can be used to talk about things that really mean something. Okay. What are some bad recommendations you hear in our profession, in our area of expertise? <laughs> um, some bad recommendations. Yeah. I'm sure that I hear lots of them, and I, um, that, that's a surprise question. Let me think. <laughs> Bad recommendation. Well, it, you know, um, certainly when we went through that phase of thinking that um, as long as people understood the language, they would learn it. And, you know, it's, I have to say, just in parentheses, it's yeah. not impossible that that's true, except you'd need a hundred years to, yes. you know, to have enough experience. Um, but um, bad advice. Well, I, I, I certainly see examples of, of teaching practices that, that uh, worry me. Um, um, teachers, who, you know, I, I think, I, I don't think I'm answering your question because it's not so much a question of bad advice. I just maybe have to turn it on its head and say, well, okay. advice. that works. Um, I, I think your real teachers have to listen to students, mm. like really listen to them, both in the sense of looking at what their, what their language is, their, their grammar and their vocabulary, so like really listen to what they can do and what they can't do really read their papers to see what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. I've seen so many cases where teachers would go through and put corrections on a paper, and, it, and those corrections would show that the teacher had never actually thought about what the student was really trying to say. Yes. The correction was to some superficial grammar point, but it didn't, it didn't even understand the student. So there was that no would focus be on the flow, I guess. It's not it's, really how the ideas connect, but mostly correcting their grammar. That's something the, very superficial like that, that's right. So. Yeah. 
Um, so really, really listen to the students in that sense, or read the students in that sense, but also pay attention to the students in, in terms of what they want to get out of the course. Why are they there? I mean, apart from the, you know, they have to be because it's their requirement. Um, yes. But most students aren't there. Most, most of us, even, even in secondary schools and primary schools, students are not just there because of the requirement. They actually think they can get something out of the class. So pay attention to what they tell you about what they want to learn. Mm -hmm. That's definitely very useful advice, Patsy. I like to think, and this is something that, um, I think it was Epictetus, one of my favorite Stoic philosophers, who said that we need to listen to understand, not listen to reply. And I find that that's by far one of the things that definitely changed the way I I deal with my students' language in the classroom when I'm really listening to what they're saying. <laughs> so, absolutely. You I'm are gonna so let you right. Off. You are so right. <laughs> I'm going to let you off the hook with the last one here. So, okay. if you could have a gigantic <laughs> billboard anywhere <laughs> with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say and why? It could be a few words. It could be a paragraph. It's up it to you. Just, what, it would just say something like, be kind to each other. You know, be kind. We, we, we spend so much time trying to be right. Mm -hmm. Much better to be kind, accept other people, recognize that, I mean, my, I've been married for 50, wait a minute, oh. <laughs> four years. <laughs> 54, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and one of the things I learned somewhere along the way mm. was that you don't always have to have the last word, even if you're right. And so I would say, be kind, you know, be, be, try to be accepting of other people and including your students. Um, yeah. don't, don't look for ways to catch them out or to, um, to show how much more you know than they know, but rather mm -hmm. just try to, I don't know, be kind. I think that's what yeah. I'd say. That's a, that's a beautiful message. I think <laughs> we'll, we'll wrap up with that. I think that's a great way to, to end this. Okay. Um, I would like to thank you for your time. And if you have anything else you would like to say, this is your chance now. <laughs> I think I've said more than enough there. <laughs> well, Patsy, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to, do, uh, to be interviewed for our podcast. And I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone learned. I learned, I actually took a lot of notes on things that you were saying. And it's, it's very reassuring for me. Um, I've only been doing this for 20 years. Um, I haven't been <laughs> in the industry for very long. But I think a lot of the things that you said were really reassuring to me because I feel like I am on the right path because there were a lot of things that I was in agreement with. I'm very happy to hear that. I'm very glad that we were able to have a meeting of minds. I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I, I'm, as I say, I have uh, enormous respect for teachers at every level. Um, it's a very hard job, but it, there can't be one that's more important. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Patsy, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.